This is an ABC podcast. Last week it was announced that the great screen and stage actress Angela Lansbury had died. Angela Lansbury was one of my all-time favourite guests on this program. When she came into the studio, she had that natural aura that a star carries with her. But she was so warm and lovely and generous at the same time. And I was astonished at the start of the interview when she was able to so completely evoke the London of her childhood in the 1930s. Angela Lansbury's life in acting began in the 40s. It continued into a series of classic films, several smash-hit Broadway productions and a long-running TV series. On screen and on stage, Angela Lansbury could be funny and bawdy and crafty and even slightly terrifying at times. She was amazingly versatile. Her greatest roles in movies like Gaslight, The Manchurian Candidate and Mame have almost nothing in common with each other aside from the fierce intelligence that lives in the performance. I spoke with Angela Lansbury back in 2013 when she was in Australia performing in a stage production of Driving Miss Daisy. Angela Lansbury, welcome to Conversations. Well, thank you, Richard. It's it's a delight to be with you. <laughs> you were born in London in 1925. Tell me a bit about the part of London you grew up in and the memories you have, the earliest memories you have of your childhood there. I remember a good deal, even though I was a little baby, I suppose. I remember lying in my pram and hearing all the various street calls and the sounds of London in the 1920s. Oh, what sort of sounds? What sort of sounds oh, do you remember? Oh, sounds of, of the coal man, you know, all of the, uh, the, the people who delivered stuff to the doors, to the kitchens of those houses. The coal man had a call. Coal! Call and you'd hear it off way down the street, same way you'd hear the clip clop of, of the horse drawn milk trucks which came along. But I remembered it and it, it sort of registered with me and remained in my mind as it has till this very day, as I'm telling you. So all of that has, has remained in my being, in my mind, in my head somewhere. And it only takes a question like yours to bring it out. There you are. The family you were born into was one part politics and one part show business. Your grandfather was a leader of the British Labour Party in the 1930s, I think it was. What impression did he make on you as a, as a little girl? I was very awed by him as, as a speaker. And also he, he, spent a, he spent time with us. He came to the house. He was a very extraordinary, charismatic figure, a man with white mutton-chop whiskers and a, a huge booming voice, a voice that could be heard all across Hyde Park, the speaker's corner, when he would stand and speak and harangue a crowd of people who were literally sometimes felt like throwing things at him because <laughs> he, had, he had such such a strong message, but he had tremendous amount of followers because you have to realise this was a period of British history where... Uh, Labour was uh, at a loss, you know. It, it was after World War I and the suffering and the lack of employment in Britain was just tremendous at that time. So he, he represented that extraordinary crowd of, of unwashed, you could say, uh, who were out of work and desperate to get back on their feet. He sounds like a man without vices because he didn't drink, did he? He didn't smoke? No, he didn't drink or smoke. He was a big churchman. He was aided enormously by his wife. She supported him in all of his aims, which was to bring about some kind of change in the, in the social aspects of British life at that time. It wasn't just politics with your grandfather. Is there an alternate reality somewhere, Angela Lansbury, where you, and not Margaret Thatcher, the first female Prime Minister of Great Britain, were you ever interested in politics? No, I, I can't honestly say that I was. I, I was awed by his ability to talk to a crowd, as I saw him on occasions in the Albert Hall, for instance. I was so impressed by that. I used to come home and sort of do imit imitations, <laughs> uh, not of what he was talking about, but I would use his style to promote, uh, you know, votes for women, <laughs> which he was very hot on. There was something very, very theatrical about 
the whole thing. It, it hit me in, in the way that it was, it was theatre. It was like a form of theatre. I didn't realise it at the time, because I was really quite young, probably eight or nine, you know. But I did have a sense of the theatricality of what I was seeing. Of being spellbound yes, by that. Yes, of being sp- spellbound and being uh, moved by the masses there who responded so strongly to every word that he said. And they all got up and they sang Jerusalem and it was, it was so theatrical and so moving to me. I, I wasn't moved, it is now, <laughs> when I think about it, but uh, at the time, of course, it was just theatre. It was a form of theatre. And you have to understand that I was surrounded by theatre through my mother, who at that time, when I was very young, was still working, and I would go to the theatre and uh, be taken to see her in plays. Now, this is your mother, who was the actress uh, Moyna McGill. That's right. What do you remember of seeing her up there performing? Um, I didn't... I wasn't good at seeing her uh, on stage. It upset me terribly to see her being... Um, in some instances, uh, put down by leading men who were cross with her or something. <laughs> I, w- I would be taken uh, with tears streaming down my face, crying copiously by Nan, who <laughs> took me out into the into the ladies' room or somewhere and gave me a glass of water. I really couldn't bear to see my mother on stage being put down. So it was all very real then to you? Oh, terribly real, yes. Oh, gosh, yes. I was terribly affected. <laughs> Did you have a strong singing voice as a child? I'm just saying this because you've, you've done so, so much singing work on Broadway. Yes, I did. I must have had, although and not at school particularly, but I've, I've been quoted and I've said this many times. My father, Edgar, always said that I could sing, Yes, Sir, That's My Baby, at the age of six months. Not the words, wow. but, the, but the melody. <laughs> Don't mean maybe, yes, sir. <laughs> so there you are. Did you do That's drama? Where it all began. Do you recall your first dramatic role at school? Uh, yes, I do. And the reaction I got was so huge that I never forgot it. What was the role? Bluebeard. Oh my God, Bluebeard. Bluebeard. Like the Bluebeard. Like the guy who murders all his wives. Yes, exactly. Now, don't ask me why the uh, South Hampstead High School for Girls was doing (laughs) a rendition of Bluebeard, but we were, and I played Bluebeard, and I got such laughs from my (laughs) girls in my class that I thought, ooh, this is it, you know, wow, this is, is, you know, it remained with me for years afterwards. I thought, gosh, I I got laughs, you know. (laughs) Do you remember what you enjoyed most about the performing? Was it it the the appreciation or was it the make-believe? Oh, it was the make-believe, the make-believe, no question about it. I wasn't looking for audience reaction in those days, not at all. Uh, I, I wasn't out there showing off. No, I really wasn't. I, I, I don't remember doing that for a minute, not for a second. It was always about becoming somebody other than myself. I think sometimes children go through periods of of a form of depression, you know, and uh, it's because of the relentlessness of school and and having to work and do the homework and and all of these things. And it was such a release for me as a young kid to to take on the attributes of somebody else, that I, I was somebody else all the time. I never was myself, whether I was sitting in a bus, I was feeling that I was somebody other than me. And I would make all kinds of attitudes and faces that I'm sure the people sitting around thought, oh, that poor little girl, what's wrong? Something must be wrong with her. But I was simply acting out somebody other than myself to keep myself busy at that moment. And also, uh, I wasn't wasn't trying to get their attention. Or maybe I was. Maybe, in fact, uh, that that was the seed of, of my desire to become an actress. But I hadn't thought it through at that time. This, is, this was way before I actually uh, started to think in terms of being an actress. And the person who really decided for me, because I didn't say, oh, I want to be an actress, you know, I want to go on the stage, I want to be like you, Mummy. No, I never said that. But she knew, she knew, and I give her full credit, because she recognised 
all of these things that were uh, quite evident, obviously, to somebody watching me, that I was wanting to be somebody other than myself. Your dad passed away when you were just nine. Yes, that that was a horrible... Was it a shock or was it a thing that sort of... The real effect of it just built up slowly over time? Well, to be truthful, I was nine and I hadn't realised because my mother was very clever. She didn't allow us children uh, at that time to see, that. Uh, although it was very swift, very fast. He, he one minute, uh, he had terrible dyspepsia and that kind of thing. And uh, finally, the doctor said, well, we're going to operate and see what's going on in there, meaning his stomach. Well, they, they opened him up and they disclosed him up and said, well, there's nothing we can do. So he his passing was very fast. And uh, I never... I was never around, I never saw him when he was suffering. Uh, I did see him at the very end, yes, I did. And uh, that, I remember it intimately, but I, at the time, I think I was so relieved for him that he, he was at peace that I, I, you know, accepted the fact that that was to be, although the loss of him was, has been tremendous. All my life. Oh, yes. Did his passing away lead to some economic hardship in your family? A, a good deal, yes, because his business uh, suffered. He left a good veneer business, actually, a Stratford Veneer Mills in, in London, in the East End, and they made a lot of the veneer, for instance, for the Queen Mary, the ship mm-hmm. when it was first built, and a lot of the panels, actually, in, in, the, uh, in the various... State rooms. State yes. rooms, yes, were, were made by the Stratford Veneer Mills. But when he died, the business suffered badly. So we, we were pretty hard put to it. It was during the period of uh, depression in the 30s, you know. He died yes. in 1935, and between 1935 and 1940, which was a five-year period, uh, things were fairly thin, thank God for my grandmother, you know. I'm, I'm, uh, 1935 is when the the war clouds are starting to gather in, in yes. Europe as well. Now, I can yeah. say that with hindsight. We know now what was about to happen. But yeah. to you, did it feel like something bad was happening, something bad was coming your way? Oh, absolutely. Why? Because at school, we suddenly had this influx of uh, German-Jewish children who were being evacuated out of Berlin and or of Germany. And... We had many, many of them in the school with with us, with me. I remember a lot. I made great friends with many of them. And um, uh, we realised that Hitler was uh, some this, this awful kind of cloud of horror and depth. And, and there, were, there were books being written. Mein Kampf, his great book, of course, came out. And everybody was aware that uh, Britain was going to be at risk of possibly going to war. I mean, it was all kind of up in the air, but nevertheless, as a child, I was very much aware of the situation. Once war broke out in 1939, how did it affect your family? You would have been 13 or 14? Well, we prepared along with everybody else in London, in the London, the greater London area. We lived in Hampstead. My mother joined the ambulance corps and uh, suddenly she was driving uh, ambulances and uh, she was dressed up in this kind of, I forget what they called it, a sort of a, a jumpsuit. We called it a jumpsuit today. It was zipped up the front. Churchill and called course, it these siren suits, didn't that's he? That's right. There was, there yes. was a siren yes. suit, yes. And she thoroughly enjoyed that, although she always said the only people she picked up uh, were not the victims of a bombing but were mostly drunks. <laughs> 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 but she did her part and... Uh, I, of course, was a, a young student at that time, and uh, although I was very young, at the age of 12, 13, I left school. I'm the most undereducated woman you'll meet in many a long year because uh, I didn't want to be evacuated out of the city with my school. And uh, I said to, to Mum, I said, uh, look, could I... I could I stay at home? I want to stay at home with you. She was all alone. My sister had taken off. She was now uh, working in a pantomime. My sister was a very good actress, incidentally. And uh, my mother said, well, all right, you can, but what we'll do is I'll have somebody come and give you lessons every, you know, every few days. We'll, we'll have English, uh, not arithmetic, because I could add up, <laughs> and um, 
literature and history and geography, and that was it. And, and that's my, my, my education was really curtailed by the war. But, but you went to drama school. You got a scholarship to go to yes, the Weber Douglas School of Dramatic Art in London. That's right, I did. What, what did that teach you there? Well, a lot, a lot. I, I picked up that very quickly. I loved what I was doing. I loved uh, taking on characters. I loved doing Shakespeare. Uh, I played Audrey and As You Like It. I loved characterising. I immediately found that I could characterise, just as I had playing Bluebeard. It just came so naturally to me. I, uh, people say, well, how do you act? Uh, and I said, well, honestly, it, with me, it's, it's pure instinct. It, uh, instinctually, I know what's required. I can't take credit for it. It's just there. It's just a built-in ability on my part. It sounds like you read the part mm-hmm. and then just let the unconscious mind let, figure it out. Yes, figure it out and also understand the text. The text says it all in almost every instance, if the writer's any good. And Shakespeare certainly knew his, uh, He's <laughs> his right, piece and cues <laughs> when, it, when it came to creating some wonderful characters. After the war broke out, <clears throat> how did you and your family get the chance to go to America? That was, came about really by a fluke. Uh, my sister Isolde uh, married Peter Ustinov, the wonderful Russian actor, writer and wonderful comedian. My goodness, what, what a talented man he was. And at their wedding reception, my mother met uh, a woman who was part of a group of people who were arranging for some British families to travel to America and to be sponsored by American families. We were lucky enough to be one of those families, and my mother was able to come with us, so that that was a huge plus. In those days, you had to get on a boat, didn't you? We got on a boat. We went up to Liverpool, took the train to Liverpool, got on a, a boat there for a Canadian Pacific liner. I thought it just occurred to me to cross the Atlantic during wartime was very dangerous. Were you escorted? Was your ship escorted in any yes, way? Yes, we were escorted by destroyers, and they were throwing over uh, depth charges all the time to hopefully throw the scent off any U-boats that might be around following were you, were you, us. Were you frightened by that? You know, it's a strange thing when you're young and you're on an adventure like that. You're not frightened. I think the adults were very frightened for us, but they, uh, they handled it, and we certainly never... It never occurred to us that the, <laughs> that the ship was going to sink, which, which was pretty stupid, all things being considered because, uh, after all, that very boat was sunk very soon after we arrived in, uh, in Canada. So leaving wartime England behind and then eventually arriving in New York at uh, Central Station, on Grand Central Station, mm. I'm guessing that's where you mm. would have arrived. Mm. What was the impression that Manhattan made on your teenage eyes as you stepped out of that well, train station? Well, Manhattan was all about noise, excitement... Um, the tooting of horns. It was like everything we'd ever seen in the movies. It, it was the personification of, of, of uh, American life was right there, all around us. It delivered you know. what, it, what the movies promised. Absolutely, it did. Which, of course, is all crazy because it really wasn't that way at all, but it, it appeared to us that way. There was a World's Fair going on in New York. We were taken to the World's Fair. And can you imagine? I mean, I'll never forget it. And uh, Broadway and all of that. I didn't know what that was. I just knew, come on along and listen to the lullaby of Broadway. You know, we'd seen the movie, right, with uh, Ruby Keeler. 42nd Street is 42nd there. 42nd Street, yeah. 42nd Street. Right. It was like the movies came to life. You have a memory of being in the taxi, which had a kind of glass roof. That's right. Lying on the back seat. Tell me what, what that was like. Oh, that was that was a, one of the most thrilling memories I have uh, of uh, looking out at the skyscrapers, particularly Rockefeller Center, which was was built at that time. It was already built. So that was what we saw. That was a skyscraper. And also the Empire State Building, of course, which we went up to the very top and went out on the on this enclosed balcony where you can see all of New York. It's one know. of life's great pleasures, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it is. It is, you know. it's Never uh, gets old. No, it, it's thrilling, it really is. But the other thing was that in, very, in a very short space of time I came to understand uh, really, really what New York City was all about and what America was all about because we didn't stay in New York City uh, uh, right away. We moved out of the city into uh, New York State, which was a lovely country, lakes, 
and, and uh, we lived in the country until I came back into the city to attend drama school, which I did almost immediately. So, you know, we, we'd sort of be rehearsing something or, or doing some uh, class, or voice or movement or something, and then we'd slink over to the window and look down, and there you see these people darting around on the ice. You know, it was pretty incredible. <laughs> now I look back Many on Many people it. say that New York in the 40s was its best decade. It was I agree its with best them. decade. I agree with them. It was like a small town, truthfully, compared to what it is today. Yes. You had the best of it. I did. I did. Tell me about your first in professional engagements out of acting school where you went up to Canada to do a kind of an act. Well, th well thank goodness. Uh, during my lifetime, there have been certain people who believed in me. Uh, there was a, a young man called Arthur Bourbon at that drama school. He was a professional dancer, but he wanted to be an actor. You know, everybody has a desire other to do something other than what they do best sometimes. In his case, <laughs> so true, yeah. he, he went on to become a Catholic priest. So you see, it takes all <laughs> kinds. <laughs> but he understood me. He realized what I was about. And he said, look, I'd like to help you. I'd like to put together a little act for you. You can have your music and you can audition. And uh, I think you could get booked in some of these supper clubs. So he put together an act which was actually built around one song by Noel Coward, and it was called I Went to a Marvellous Party. I couldn't which, have enjoyed it more. Yes, yeah. yes, and that's the one. Don't you have to pretend to be tipsy while you're doing that song? Just about. And had yes. you ever been tipsy at that, until never, that point? Never, in my life. No, <laughs> I, well, I, I, no, I went for marvellous party. You know, it was quite easy to, to do all that. But we introduced a whole bunch of characters to allow me to show all of these different voices that I could do. Now, he knew about those. I could do a, a Kirsten Flagstad, for instance, a great, great opera singer who was, a, you know, a very dramatic soprano. And I could do an imitation of her. I could do a French chanteuse. I could do a Gracie Fields. I, you know, I could do all of the kind of current ladies of the theatre and so on. And I did imitations of them. So he incorporated all that into the, the web work, which was I went to a marvellous party. And it was a whole act, uh, except that I threw in a couple of standards at the beginning sang a song called Tangerine, which was a, a favourite at the time on the, on, the, on the radio, you know. And did you draw and, on music hall you'd seen as a kid? Oh, the old of course, yeah. of course. I yeah. used to love to listen to Gracie Fields, you know, Sally, yeah, Sally in our alley, all of that. I remembered it. And we listened to the radio all the time when I was a kid. We listened to Henry Hall and his orchestra. And it takes women of my age to remember those. If they immigrated from Britain, they would know what I'm talking about. Youngsters won't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get to Hollywood? Uh, I went to Hollywood because my mother had uh, found herself there uh, because she was lucky enough to get a job acting in a, a travelling show and they toured all the way across America and through Canada to raise funds for the Canadian RAF. Now, the Canadian RAF were indeed... Um, training the British Spitfire pilots at that time in Canada. She came across from New York up to um, Montreal, I guess, and then across all the way to um, the other side. So she, she was the first one to come to California. And uh, she sent me a wire and she said, uh, put the boys back into school, close up the flat. We had a one-room flat at that time in New York. And you should come out here. I think perhaps we can find, you could find work out and, here. And how old would you have been when that happened? I was uh, 16. Wow, that's a lot mm. of responsibility. You'd already done so much. I did so much. But, but you see, in those days, we, re we grew up very quickly. The war years insisted, it seems, that we really had no childhood. And I had no childhood to speak of. I had, I had very early childhood, but I had really no teen years. So you arrive in Hollywood, and then that's very different from England. It's hot, it's dry, it's Absolutely. flat, it's open space, yes. all those things. I never forget getting off the train, and uh, the first thing that hit me was the dryness, as you say, and uh, the, um, the flowers, they were all geraniums, red 
geraniums, and to this day, red geraniums will always remind me of the first time I got off the train, and there they were on the, alongside the tracks. Where did you live at first in Hollywood? At first, we, we moved to, together into a, a one-room apartment. One room? Where did you sleep? One room. I slept in the kitchen, actually, because there was a pull-down bed, and she, she had a pull-down bed that was in the living room, so that uh, in the daytime I could put my pull-down bed up against the wall in the kitchen and she could put her pull-down bed up against the wall in a sort of cupboard in the living room and it didn't seem like a bed-sitter as uh, it might have done. Did, did you? I don't think you've ever lost that sense, have you, of how to get by in hard times? No, no, I haven't. How could you? You can't. If, you, if you've been there, you've been there, you know. On air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So once you got to LA, what kind of work were you able to get? I finally got a good job in a, sh- in a wonderful shop called Bullock's Wilshire, which was a sort of was a dream uh, place. It was like what Saxeth Avenue is today. Like a classy department Very store, Very classy. Yes. A beautiful, beautiful building on Wilshire Boulevard. And uh, I got a job just as a cashier. That was my first job at Christmas time as a wrapper. I gave Christmas packages, but I also made change. So it was all business of handling money constantly and giving change and all that sort of thing. And for somebody who was a bit weak in the mathematics department, it's a wonder that anybody got the right change. <laughs> but I didn't last very long doing that because I was sort of snapped up by the buyer in the uh, cosmetic department thing who gave me a job as a saleswoman. So I came back after Christmas as a saleswoman. And then getting into the movies, though, that's a big leap. Uh, yes, huge. But I wasn't terribly ambitious. It's a curious thing. I never have been. People have been ambitious for me. I've never gone screeching after roles, although I did. I certainly went out of my way to get one role. But I'll tell you about that another time. Gaslight was your first film. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw it, I was kind of trembling with rage. Yes, I know. It's a very, very powerful film. It is, it is. This is you with Charles Boyer, and he's tormenting his wife, and she doesn't mm. know it. And, and, and you eventually become complicit in this mm. torture as, as the maid. And here you are kind of flirting with him, the master of the house. What are you doing with your evening out? Oh, I'm going to a musical. I've never been to an English musical. You like it a lot, sir. Well, we must see about that. And who are you going to the musical with? Gentlemen friends, sir. Oh, now you know, Nancy, don't you? That gentlemen friends are sometimes inclined to take liberties with young ladies. Oh, no, sir. Not with me. I can take care of myself when I want to. You know, Nancy, it strikes me that you're not at all the kind of girl that your mistress should have for a housemaid. No, sir. She's not the only one in the house, is she? That's a scene with two oh. very bad people who, who recognise each other. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's bad. Now, may yeah. I be so impertinent as to say, you're very sexy in that film. Yes. Did you know you were being sexy in that film? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> like, Ingrid Berman's beautiful, but you're kind of... Hello. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it when she says, I hope I don't have to sleep in the same bed with her. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about the housekeeper, you know. (laughs) Rather frumpy elderly lady. Yes. You look like you're having fun in that film, being such a such a bad character. Oh, I did, I did. And George Kilcoy, the director, used to roar with laughter. He loved watching it. That came out almost at the same time as a picture of Dorian Gray. And he... Very soon, yes. But I, another one in between. You must mustn't forget National Velvet. National Velvet with which, Elizabeth Taylor. And that was sort of fun because I really didn't want to do it very much 
because I was now sort of riding high on the crest of gaslight, you know, and I was a big kind of things were happening. And I thought, oh, this is fun, you know, I'm enjoying this. And then suddenly I have to go back and become a 15-year-old and, it's been wet, <laughs> and isn't it? flatten my bosoms and, you know, <laughs> and look like a 15-year-old at the sister of Elizabeth. wasn't very happy about that. <laughs> However... Put up with it and got on with it. And, and then you, there you are as Sybil Vane in yes. the picture of Dorian Gray, and here you are in a tavern singing around the ludicrously handsome Mr Dorian Gray. The snow was very plentiful And crumbs were very few When a weather-beaten sparrow through A mansion window flew And as you're singing this, you're slowly becoming bewitched by oh, Dorian yes. Gray. It's kind oh, of an interesting yes. thing because he's supposed to be bewitched by yes, you. Yes, yes. Well, Your co-star there who played Dorian Gray was Herd Hatfield. Herd Hatfield, yes, a dear, dear friend. He, he was the godfather of my eldest son, Anthony, and uh, he was a dear, dear friend and a most unique, wonderfully interesting individual. So you nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Gaslight, Best Supporting Actress mm -hmm. in the next year for Picture of Dorian Gray. You'd only just kind of arrived in Hollywood, and you must have mm. thought at that moment that, oh, this show, this thing, this is easy. Uh, no, I, I, I honestly didn't. I was, I was awed by what I was being asked to do, and I was very shy. And for years, I was very shy. Uh, as I say, I didn't promote what happened to me. Other people did. Thank goodness. There were directors, there were writers, there were producers who saw in me an actress who could turn her hand, as the, as the saying goes, to a number of different kinds of characters, which made me a very valuable asset to MGM during the period that I was under contract to them because I was there for actually about eight or nine years and uh, uh, was very glad to leave in the end uh, because they were using me like, a utilitarian actress rather than promoting me as a star. They didn't do that with me. They didn't give me the roles that I wanted to play. And like in The Three Musketeers, I wanted to play Lady de Winter. This is an old story, but, I mean, this was a, one incident of me actually going to L.B. Mayer and saying, why won't you let me play that role? And him saying, no, dear, um, Alana Turner is going to play that role. You will play the Queen of France. <laughs> So I played the Queen of France, yes. How, how was Louis B. Mayer with, with actresses at your level? Was he civil and polite? Because he, be, he could be horribly rude, even violent yeah. at times well, he, to people. He could be, he could be, yes. As a businessman, yes, he was all of those things. But to me and to my mother, he, he was a great admirer of women who did things and who had families who could all do things. Now, my brothers were also very talented in one way and another. My brother Bruce became a writer and a vice president of CBS and uh, my brother Edgar, a very successful theatrical producer and artist. So he believed in bloodlines, you know, because he, he raised racehorses and he, uh, <laughs> he believed that my mother was a good mayor. <laughs> that ridiculous. But we put our foot down and said no, and I say we because I was one of them. I knew that that would be the last thing. For a shy person, to becoming a famous face, how did that affect you? It was tricky, very tricky, because I, I wasn't your uh, average uh, glamour girl. I was still that English girl who happened to be a good character actress. That's really what I was. So uh, I didn't fit the mould at all well, and it wasn't until I went to New York and became an actress, quotes, or nominated for Tony Awards and things of that sort that... Uh, I felt in any way that I had arrived. You had one marriage, it didn't work out, and then you met Peter Shaw. Yes. Do you remember the impression he made on you when you, you met him? Well, I do, I do. I do remember very, very well. He was a, a walking example of probably the most ideal young man you could possibly imagine. That's really? what he was. Yes, oh, that... absolutely. Peter Shaw was it. <laughs> no question about it. He was a very handsome And yet man, he was yes. very, very handsome. But he was also a, a good old-fashioned English guy. He was an Englishman. He'd been in the army for seven years in, in England. He'd been in Germany. You know, he was a, a most delightful, charming and uh, erudite man. So 
we met and he, he'd been squiring, as they said in Hollywood in those days, all the current ladies like Lana Turner and Rita Hayworth and all these people. But he was very pleased to meet a girl of his own type. You know what I mean? We came, we came from the same sort of strata. So we, we, we just hit it off. We absolutely hit it off. And I think it was such a relief for him to be with an English girl who totally understood his language, what he was talking about. And, and I was thrilled to be squired by a man who was such a knockout and such a terrific person. 54 years you were together. You must have been able to finish each other's sentences and almost read each other's minds, I suppose. Absolutely. Oh, you do. You do. We had such an interesting and varied existence together. We went through so many phases of, of great success, of very difficult, difficult family situations, as most families do. And um, ours was no different. Our kids were victims of the 1970s, uh, the drug years. And... Uh, Thank God we finally decided through a happenstance, actually, our house burnt down in one of the great forest fires in Malibu, 1970. We lost our house and lost absolutely everything. And uh, a year later, I said to Peter, you know, I think it's time we got out of here. Let's grab the kids and go. So he continued to work. At that time, he was working at MGM as a head, one of the heads of production there. And uh, we, we moved to Ireland. We had no home in the States anymore, so we moved to Ireland and uh, bought a house there. And how did that change the family life, the family Hugely, dynamic? hugely. It was a wonderful break from what they had had because those days were very, very difficult. It was very difficult to help young people. You came to Australia in 1958 yeah. to make Summer of the 17th Doll and it was been a very different Australia back then too. What do you remember of that time, driving around Sydney in your Hillman Minx that you had yes. in those days? Yes, I lived in King's Cross and uh, we had a flat and uh, I, bought the, I bought my two little ones and uh, the four of us lived together in a flat in King's Cross and um, Point Piper all around there. It was wonderful. We, we went all over Sydney and in those days it was easy to go all over Sydney because it was a small town. You also visited a, a little boy called Malcolm, didn't you? I did. Uh, we, we were on the beach and we met, well, actually prior to going on the beach, we met his mother, Coral Lansbury, who got in touch with me right away because she knew that our families were connected. So we, we hooked up together and she was wonderfully uh, helpful and suggested we all meet and have picnics at Bondi, which we did. And during that period, I met Malcolm, who was a little boy of about four, delightful, full of beans, smart, very smart, even at four. The young Malcolm Turnbull. Young Malcolm Turnbull. And uh, I had the pleasure of uh, meeting him again just a couple of months ago in New York City. We, we just got along like a house on fire. Took on a role in The Manchurian Candidates as Mrs. Iceland, one of the most ruthless human beings ever seen on the screen. I want to play a, a kind of key moments from The Manchurian mm. Candidate where she explains to her son, who's mesmerised, who's hypnotised, yeah. why she's done what she's done. I know you will never entirely comprehend this, Raymond, but you must believe I did not know it would be you. I served them. I fought for them. I'm on the point of winning for them the greatest foothold they will ever have in this country. And they paid me back by taking your soul away from you. I told them to build me an assassin. I wanted a killer from a world filled with killers, and they chose you. Because they thought it would bind me closer to them. But now we have come almost to the end. One last step. And then when I take power, they will be pulled down and ground into debt for what they did to you. And what they did in so contemptuously underestimating me. Mm -hmm. I, rem I remember sitting in my bed in Malibu learning that speech. It was so pungent and so I really couldn't wait to perform it because it, it says it all, you know. Brenda, Brenda Blethyn, the British actress, uh, was on this program years ago. She said yeah. something really interesting to me. She was defending her role as Mrs. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, who's a, a silly character that we all laugh at. And she yes. says, but she defends Mrs. Bennett. Mm -hmm. She defends her, even though she's very unlikable. Yes. 
And she says, I feel I can defend all of the characters I do, no matter how appalling they may seem mm -hmm. to the audience. Do you feel the same way about your roles? And do they have to be defensible to you? Oh, I think they do on a certain level. You have to be able to justify the way you present that character. And the only way you can do that is if you understand the underpinnings of that individual. By that, I mean where they come from, what made them that way, and, and what they base their, uh, their attitude on. And I think what she says is very true. And, Mrs. And, Mrs. and Mrs. Iceland there. And Mrs. Iceland probably be a, a pretty hard one to yeah. defend. Uh, but because it was so complex, her whole association, you know, with the Russians or, or, and, and the whole thing was so difficult. I, I never truthfully totally understood. But I understood enough to be able to sell you, the audience, on the fact that she didn't know until that moment. The, the whole the plot of it is kind of crazy. It and is. watching it, the whole film hangs on you. Mm. It, it hangs on you being a plausible monster. And I wonder if that's why you're speaking so very quietly. It's because you're in that in that role. You don't oh, really raise your voice. She, I think she was ready to oof. I mean if you think about what had happened, how they had taken her for a fool. You know, they played her for an idiot and for a woman of her power. You know, she, she was going to get in there. That was her, that was her purpose in life, was to, to be, be the wedge to get in there. So uh, for them to have made such an ass out of her, really, I think really, pissed her off, as we say. Absolutely. And, and you know totally. the only performance yeah. in it that I can, I can, it makes me think of is Al Pacino in The Godfather Part Two, where yes. he's, he's at his most coldly menacing, his oh. voice drops down to almost a whisper. Yes. And that's you there too. Yes, absolutely. Because I, th I, th I think this is what happens, you know, when, when, when a person is, is put up against uh, a power that is greater than them and they're going to overcome that, that you've got to go in under. That's when you're going under. I'm going to flip this whole thing around 180 degrees and talk about MAME now. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, it wasn't long after this you did MAME on Broadway. Oh, that's right, I did. Really. Light the candles Get the ice out Roll the rug up It's too dead Though it's far from the first of the year I know that this very minute Has history in it We're here Now, now you can be famous in Hollywood And be in a, a movie star is one thing But being in a smash hit Broadway production While you're living in New York It feels different altogether, doesn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely different You own the town If you're a successful If you have a successful show in New York You own the town and that's a wonderful feeling. Because your picture's on the side of a bus, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, yes. You walk down the street and the workers on trucks, they, they salute you, they, they shout out to you. You know, you, you are it. You know, that's a whole different ballgame. You acclaim, you get wonderful reviews for it, and you get a Tony Award. Mm -hmm. And was this a time at last in your career when you felt... Because, you know, you'd had ups and downs where you felt, well, I've got it now and it's never getting away from me. At, at that time, yes. I, how, how could I not? Yes, I certainly uh, felt secure. Uh, but there's always the question of what am I going to do next, you know? And what came up next was The Mad Woman of Shio, The Dear World, which was a, a lovely, lovely score. And by that time, I was singing really well. I could really depend on my voice and I could do eight performances a week and I was never off, you know. So I did that for a year afterwards and then I did another show after that. I did Gypsy, actually, in London. So I, I was on a roll, as they say.
one great role after another, which I was given the opportunity to do, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. You start as Mrs. Lovett in Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd, yes, Sweeney Todd, Demon Barber. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. man, that's a hard role to sing, isn't oh, it? I mean, all those very, notes very and time hard. signature. Oh, and yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh. It took me three weeks to learn that score, and I never forgot it, you know. And... It was huge, just huge, because it was so innovative. You did have that very, very long run uh, in Murder, She Wrote, on TV as Jessica Fletcher, the longest-running crime series, I believe, a detective drama series in TV history. You began as a star of that show, and then you became a producer. Mm. What changes did you make when you were a producer? Oh, some rather big changes. I plucked her out of Cabot Cove for a few of the episodes, and I said, let's have her have a sort of pied-à-terre, as they call it, in New York City. And that way we will open up. Uh, she could be start teaching again. After all, uh, you know, how many murders can you have yeah. in Cabot Cove? I was going to say. So, yeah. yeah, enough already. <laughs> so uh, things like that. And we ha- she had this kind of uh, studio apartment in New York, and it put her in touch with young people, which is, I was very anxious that she would get with young people and not always these uh, old fishermen and people <laughs> down in <laughs> Cabot Cove, you know. But the youngsters enjoyed some of the le- the latter shows, which, as I say, took her around the world. In some instances, she went to Russia, she went to, you know, Berlin, Moscow. She really covered the globe. And it made her more interesting, and she got to meet some guys. And heaven's sakes, here she was. She was an OK-looking gal, and, you know, she she was very good with men. So I... I think that's what I brought to the piece, and uh, I'm glad I did. You are in Australia doing Driving Miss Daisy on stage with James Earl Jones. Now, I had him on just over a week ago, and I asked him about how you got to age during the course of the show, and he says, he said, I don't don't age, he said, I youthen. So he begins acting younger than he is, and he just lets the kind of rubber band slip back to the start. (laughs) He says, how are you doing this ageing process during the course of the play? Well, no, I I do it a little more methodically. (laughs) I act in a more sprightly manner. I walk the walk and talk the talk as a younger woman. She's 72 at the beginning, and at the end, she's in her late 90s. Uh, she's in her 90s, anyway, which is older than I am. And I thought nobody was older than I am, but I, as it turns <laughs> out, she is. <laughs> it's, of course, set in the segregated south of the United States in, in the post-war yeah. years. Did you ever have much experience of that? What, do you remember the impact that made on you when you went to America for the first time? How long it took for you to realise that this was going on? in the south of the United States? It really took me a long time because if you live in the northern uh, part of the States and you don't have reason to be in the south, you're not nearly as aware of it. Granted, at that time, the black population, the coloured people, were all in uh, inferior jobs, probably uh, doormen, elevator operators. Uh, they did all of those service jobs that nobody else particularly wanted. They were on the trains, they were the conductors. But in those days, that's just about all they were known for. And, of course, the women were the maids and, uh, and, and so on. So uh, that, that was a given, you know. It, it was just something that existed in America. And then when I went down to the South, which I did because I made a movie called uh, uh, The Long Hot Summer with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, and uh, I became aware of the lives of the uh, black population at that time. Down in Georgia and Alabama, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It was, it was shocking, really. It's a minimalist production of Driving Miss Daisy. You know, there's yes. very little in the way of props or sets or anything like that. It all, it all hangs on you and James L. Jones and uh, yes. Boyd Gaines as bully mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. production. Now, your 87th year, that, that's a large load to carry on stage, I would say. Yes, I think it is. It is. And uh, I'm aware of that. And uh, I have to think about that and gear up for it and not burn the candle at both ends, as it were. I really have to pay attention to strength and energy. And thank goodness those are two things that I've always had all my life. Tremendous energy. And it hasn't let me down yet. Angela, it's a rare treat to speak to someone like you. And, and I'm just thinking as I'm talking to you now that, you know, we've, we've, we've come a long way in talking about your life. Yes. Beginning in 1925, through the war years, coming to America, yeah. post-war years in Hollywood, Broadway in the 70s, and yeah. here we are now. When you, when you look back, 
do you think you are today that same teenage girl that got on that boat to the United States? Or have you, as, as living in America all those years, changed you? Um, that's, a, that's a tricky question. I think that you, you can't help but grow through experience. Um, but basically I am still that same person. And I think that's the thing that's kept me very firmly feet on the ground and also able to ride through a tremendous amount of really horrifying bits of life, you know, the things that one deals with within families, illness, loss, all those things. But basically... That person who came to America as a teenager, that person still very much in the forefront. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Kurt Fernley, Paralympian and proud person with a disability. And I'm Sarah Shands, mum of a bright, bubbly, hilarious kid with a disability. I'm an hilarious, I'm fabulous. We're the hosts of a new ABC podcast called Let Us In. Each week, we'll speak with people from around Australia to find out what it's like to live with a disability. She belongs in society, that she's not going to be separated because of who she is and her disability. Every time I arrive at the airport, I turn into someone I don't like. I start to volunteer in different places because I believe to be a volunteer, it keeps you alert. The way that I think about it is that shame is the voice of rejection whispered in the inner ear that says, I am not worthy. Real stories from people with disability about what's really going on. Let us in. The new episode out every Wednesday on the ABC Listen app.